I'm Rosalind Helderman. I'm an investigative reporter for the National Political Staff. For the last several years, I've been part of the team of reporters who have been reporting about Donald Trump and Russia. We end up pursuing a lot of tips that go nowhere. We make a lot of calls. And what it takes is persistence and support over a long period of time. The journalism we do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. You can become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. Thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 5th. Today, what we're learning from the impeachment inquiry transcripts, the new face of human smuggling, and cricket gets a little more mainstream. What has been happening this week in the impeachment inquiry? We are starting to see some of what happened behind closed doors. Karin Demergen covers Congress for The Post. And behind closed doors, current and former administration officials have been testifying to House investigators. The transcripts are starting to come out. They are long because each of these interviews took almost 10 hours each. Not every single one, but many of them. And we're starting to see some of the dynamics of what happened behind closed doors, the details of the information that these witnesses could provide. And it's giving us a view into both what the Democrats' strategy is for building this case, but also what the Republican strategy is for tearing it down. And I will leave you all to review those transcripts. There are a few things that will become immediately clear when you do. And the first is that contrary to the claims of the president and his acolytes on the Hill, that these have been proceedings in which the Republicans have not been able to be present or ask questions. In fact, Republicans were present for all of these depositions. I'm concerned about this whole process that Adam Schiff is running. We just had a vote Thursday. Right? They said they were going to open up the process, and yet we're still meeting down here in the bunker in the basement of the Capitol. I thought this was be- Well, I want to get there, but before we do that, who are the people whose transcripts have now been released? We have thus far seen transcripts from Marie Yovanovitch, who was the former ambassador to Ukraine, who was ousted earlier this year, and Michael McKinley, who was a senior advisor to Pompeo at State. What have we learned so far from the transcripts? We've learned the most from the Ivanovich transcript because she lays out a timeline of when she started to hear from her Ukrainian contacts about the moves that Giuliani was making with Ukrainian officials to try to do something that seemed like it was fishy. And she was being told by her contacts that she personally should watch her back. She was elbowed out. There were people in the Trump administration who wanted to see her gone. And it appears from her testimony, you can see that if her testimony is to be believed, that there are people up the chain in the State Department who want to protect her but are afraid to say that publicly because they are afraid of stepping in front of Trump and suffering the consequences of just having the whole State Department be undercut. So it gives you a sense of the dynamic of tension, of disagreement, of cross-purposes, really. And what's also interesting about these transcripts is that not only do they provide more insights on what transpired earlier this year with regards to the White House and the administration and Ukraine, but they also offer some insights about how the impeachment inquiry itself has been going. Yeah, it's really interesting to see both the process and the personalities that are on display when you get to look at the entire word-for-word transcript of what happened. So you have... 
staff director is doing a lot of the questioning on both sides. But it's interesting when you see members jump in and here and there. And especially it's interesting on the GOP side because they are, at this juncture at least, the early part of the inquiry, taking a lot of different shots at the probe. You saw a lot of challenging of the process of the legitimacy of Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee to even be running the process, questioning witnesses' loyalties and biases and things like that. Now, her testimony was fairly early on, so this may not be a pattern that we see throughout every transcript that's released from here on. But it gives you a view of there is a lot of spaghetti being thrown at the wall here to see what sticks. But it's also interesting that we see from the transcripts that there are moments where Republican members express concern about what is happening during those depositions, being talked about openly, being released to the public— even though publicly many Republicans have been critical of the process, saying that there hasn't been enough transparency, that things have not been released to the public. We want to know what's going on. And it's only reasonable that we would have questions because so far, Adam Schiff's impeachment inquiry has been marked by secret interviews, selective leaks. And so it seems like there's some hypocrisy there. Republicans are kind of doing this double thing, right, which is they're saying that the process should be transparent, it should be open but also criticizing Democrats for alleged leaks and for not keeping tight enough reins on the entire process. You see in the McKinley transcript how Republicans openly call out Jerry Connolly, who is a member of the Foreign Affairs and Oversight Committees, which are two of the three panels that are running this probe, who spoke on the record to reporters about the testimony of Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent. That was the day before the McKinley testimony. And you see like a verbal fistfight basically over whether that was allowed to have happened and whether there's going to be any punishments and there are consequences to be suffered for that. You see in the Yovanovitch testimony at one point that Republican members just go at it with her lawyer over why her opening statement appears to have been made available to the Washington Post and lawyers refusing to answer questions about it. And they just ask question after it goes on for pages about, you know, oh, is the Washington Post supposed to have more access to this stuff than we are? Turns out there's a photocopying error that happened with staffers inside the committee, but it just it shows you how very on edge everything is and how worried the Republicans are that Democrats are going to be able to pull the levers of when they do things privately, when they do it in public, and that they have no control over that. And so you do end up having this kind of this headbutter of an argument from the GOP of like, well, we want more transparency, but not now if you don't give it to us the way we want it on our terms. Hmm. And that's probably going to continue until we actually get to an open hearing where everything's just out there. So last week, there was a vote on a resolution that formalizes the impeachment inquiry and also provides some rules and procedures on how it will go forward. What exactly was significant about that resolution and how will it change what we can expect to see in coming weeks? What's significant about that resolution is that it creates a space for a non-traditional way of conducting these open hearings. It also puts a lot of power in the intel committees, because it's the intel committee chairman and ranking member who are supposed to be running that show. But it also sets up, and importantly, um, sets up the rules of, you know, what the president's rights are going to be, when he can have counsel present, when they can actually recommend, suggest witnesses to come forward, and indicates how everything has to be made public before it gets transferred over to the Judiciary Committee, which will write the articles of impeachment that eventually go to the floor. So, that is all going to happen in weeks to come. But right now, it is 11 o'clock on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Do we expect that there are going to be more transcripts released in, in coming hours, coming days? I think what we're all looking for 
is we're wondering when we're going to see the transcripts from people like Gordon Sondland and from Kurt Volker. They were the ones who were told to work with Giuliani on Ukraine policy after Yovanovitch was pushed out of her role and went forward doing that. They are the ones that shared the text messages. They are the ones who were directly communicating with President's Chief of Staff and John Bolton and others who have not come in, may not come in, may come in down the line. We're not sure. But they have a front row seat to all of this because they were the operators of all of it. And so those two transcripts, when we see them, will give us a real close view into what was going on, what decisions were being taken, and what debate was being had. And if people knew at the time that something seemed like a quid pro quo and if they decided to go ahead with it anyway. And that's going to be really important for having as a foundation. Karin Demergent is a congressional reporter covering national security for The Post. On Tuesday afternoon, the House released transcripts from the testimonies of Kurt Volker and Gordon Sondland. Sondland is the American ambassador to the EU. And in a document that was dated on Monday, Sondland amended his earlier testimony. He said that he did, in fact, tell an advisor to the Ukrainian president that, quote, the resumption of U.S. aid would likely not occur until Ukraine provided the public anti-corruption statement that we had been discussing. This is a significant reversal in how Sondland previously characterized his discussions with Ukraine. The way the Trump administration often frames the discussion about smuggling is that these are international cartels and gangs that are sneaking people into the United States or dropping them off on the border to surrender. Smugglers use migrant children as human pawns to exploit our laws and gain access to our country. But what we're seeing on the U.S. side is that most of the people prosecuted for the crime of human smuggling are American citizens. They're part of this, and a very important part of this, because the ride from the border north deeper into the United States is the last and crucial leg. You don't get past the Border Patrol checkpoints, you know, 100 miles north of the border, then you can't get in. I mean, so the Americans are very, very important to this process now. And, and it looks like it's by design. I mean, it's something that has risen gradually. You know, it went from, you know, 80% foreign nationals to half foreign nationals, and then 63% U.S. citizens. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. Recently, she's been reporting on human smuggling across the southern border. Lots of administrations have prosecuted smugglers, but the Trump administration, like all immigration crimes, is doing more. And these prosecutions are... For smuggling, very serious crimes. You know, what you saw during family separation, parents being prosecuted for illegally crossing the border, that's a minor infraction. Typically, you get time served and you're on your way back to immigration detention. But with smuggling, again, it's a very serious crime and it can carry jail time. And when you say that they're prosecuting more smugglers, uh, what kind of increase are we talking about? So it's nothing compared to uh, the 80,000 people prosecuted for crossing the border illegally, but it's about 4,100, 4,200 people in the first nine months of 2019. That's according to the court system. 
And that's up from more than 2,000 in past years. It's a 31% jump from when Trump took office. And what do we know about who these smugglers are? So information about the smugglers comes out in court records. And I was struck, we often hear the Trump administration saying these folks are, are criminal gangs, they're international cartels. But the American citizens who are picking people up, you know, in their Chevy Malibus or their Ford trucks are often ordinary people. Maybe a friend called them and needed a ride or a relative said, can you pick up these people? I'll give you some money for it. One man told me he got into a car and was going to escort an uh, undocumented immigrant from one point to another because his brother asked him to. There's all sorts of reasons. You know, one common thread seems to be that people agree to do this because they need money. The vast majority are U.S. citizens right now. It's a sign of the agility, really, of the smuggling networks because over time, as the border has gotten harder to cross, you see the smuggling industry changing. And so the idea is that it will be easier to get through with a U.S. citizen. So tell me about some of the stories that you heard about who these American smugglers are. So the smugglers that I met were all sorts of people. There were single mothers who needed money. They were oil field workers, all sorts of people for whom this is a reality on the border. One official told me parents of children on the border have the talk with them, as he put it, and and that is don't pick up anyone. You mm. know, if I mean, you can give them water, you can give them food, but don't pick them up because the ride is the crime. And that was really interesting. That is normal along the border. People talk about this all the time. So when I was down there, I heard a story about a group of high school students who had been accused of smuggling. And they included former football players, track runners, people who, for the most part, officials said were good kids. And they decided to allegedly, you know, um, smuggle this group of migrants down this lonely country road. They, they decided to take the back roads to avoid the border patrol. And a sheriff deputy spotted them. There was a chase. It was a rainy night, a dark night, and a very powerful truck. And according to the sheriff's department, uh, one of the teenagers driving uh, lost control of the truck, and it flipped over and crashed. And an immigrant was killed, a 57-year-old man. And several people suffered severe injuries. One woman, her arm was so injured that it was amputated. Oh, my gosh. And so these were just regular American teenagers, and they decide that they're going to try to bring people over the border and smuggle them into the U.S., and then all of this unfolded. Well, that's the accusation. They're expected to plead not guilty. I was able to reach some of the family members, um, and, and they said they're grasping for answers. I mean, several of the kids went to Eagle Pass High School. Most of the kids actually did, and they're in the yearbooks. One was a very prominent football player. One young man was very active in his church. And so, you know, this high school does everything it can to promote a different kind of path. They have banners to go to college. They have all kinds of clubs and activities and things like that. And they say they warn students against the dangers of smuggling because you can go to jail and you lose a lot of options in your life, in your career. But according to the sheriff's department, the, the money that was on the table was significant. You know, there were two cars, two trucks. The first one is a scout truck to try to, you know, uh, serve as a decoy for authorities um, or just to check out the road ahead. And each teenager in that truck was supposed to get $1,000. And oh, wow. then... And then the, the teenagers 
carrying the migrants were supposed to share $10,000. Wow. And that is, you know, an incredible amount of money. I mean, one of the the driver's grandmother said he had been through just a string of traumas. And in spite of them, he had stayed in school. You know, he had real dreams. He wanted to go to college, very popular, um, has a lot of Facebook friends. But his home had been flooded and lost everything. His dad went to federal prison, you know, for money laundering, and his mom died of cancer last year. He was worried about money because he wanted to be a welder and he needed to pay the tuition. So is that the sense that when you see random Americans participating in smuggling, people who don't have any real connections to organized smuggling networks, that the reason they're doing this or the reason why it is an attractive option in many cases is because it is really lucrative or it can be? It, it really can be. But as one analyst told me, you know, the honchos rarely fall. These are often low-level operatives who need money. And, uh, and it can be a lot of money. Some other folks said to me when I was down there that often people don't see human smuggling as something as bad as drug smuggling because you're giving someone a ride. You know, one, one man who pleaded guilty to smuggling said, you know, who wants to go to jail for giving somebody a ride? It's not seen it perhaps by some people as serious, but it, but it is under the law. You can really go to federal prison for a long time for it. So how has this dynamic evolved over the years? So before you had this phenomenon of the past year or so, um, most people would try to sneak into the United States, um, either in the trunks of cars or however they did it. And so over the past year, you've had this incredible thing happen where you have a lot of families, particularly parents and young children, just surrendering at the border and bewildering Border Patrol agents who are just used to people running away from them. And, and and often swamping these facilities with hundreds of people at a time was, was really something we've not seen before. And the idea was that they were trying to just get an asylum hearing and that they were trying to get into the U.S. temporarily for them to wait for their asylum hearing. Right. And so the Trump administration countered that tactic by pushing people back into Mexico. And now they're trying to do that with even more countries. And so all these folks are awaiting their U.S. asylum hearings but they're waiting for them in Mexico. And so you have this, this huge pool of people who may wish to become paying customers of the smugglers again. So as one person put it to me, basically we're going back to where we started. We're going back to the old way of people sneaking in and taking these terrible risks and, and risking death as a result. So certainly the number of crossings are slowing down. Maybe there will be fewer people willing to take the risk because they know how dangerous it is. But if you really have to go, people will go. And, and that's the real fear right now, that people will, will take more risks and, and die or be harmed in the process. I talked to a relative of the man who was killed in the accident with the high school students. And she said that... He had lived in the United States for 35 years and was deported after a criminal conviction. But when he was sent back to Mexico, he didn't even bother going back to the hometown he's from. He immediately made plans to return to the United States with smugglers. And now he's buried in the town where he lived in Texas. Maria Sacchetti is an immigration reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing from local reporter Rebecca Tan. What's it? 
Off a highway in Sterling, Virginia, there's an indoor training facility where young kids come to practice their sport. There's AstroTurf, there are black nets, you know, there's always equipment on the ground. There are like SUVs parked outside all the time. And then there's always, you know, a group of dads basically standing around, like doing what dads do, talking about what dads always do at the sides of a ball game. Every part of this feels like it's traditional American suburbia, except that the kids are playing cricket. So cricket is a band ball game that is fairly similar to baseball, but has some significant differences. It's a lot more complicated for one. It has a lot more rules. It can last days at a time. And it's really popular in the UK and in some former British colonies like India, Pakistan, etc. In recent years, it's really grown in popularity in the US and specifically in regions where there are large South Asian communities. Montgomery County, a suburb of the D.C. region, recently opened a purpose-built cricket field, which just means the land was bought, it was designed and created for the purposes of cricket. And by looking into the opening of this field, we realized that there was an uptick in popularity and interest in the game. After talking to some of these coaches, they said that, that what they've been observing is something that's helping to really drive the interest is American-born kids of South Asian immigrant parents. And so this is a drill to like get your feet moving, get your blood flowing. I met Shiv Nair, who is the captain of the Future Star School of Cricket Lions team. He, he runs drills by himself about three, four times a week. And this is in addition to his training every Wednesday with his team. And on weekends, nearly every weekend that he can, he travels for away games. And you want to be a professional cricket player, is yeah. that your thing? Are you like set on it? Do you have like a backup plan or anything like uh, that? No, no backup plans. No backup plans. So his dad said that he really was not expecting his son to be this invested in, in cricket. And this was something that I heard from a bunch of other parents and fathers, you know, Shiv, uh, at some point during our conversation, said that, you know, his big dream that he's working towards is to play cricket for India, to wear, you know, the sky blue uniform of the Indian national team. I'm going to go to India. I'm going to practice there a lot. And then I'm going to get citizenship and then I want to play for India. I, I would want to play American cricket, but like Indian cricket's more competitive. Yeah. And his dad, you know, who gave up a lot to leave his family back in Kerala to come to the U.S. to give his children sort of a better opportunities in, in, in various ways, feels sort of in, in two ways about it, I think. Yeah, we came here to take advantage of uh, the opportunities here. Yeah. Quite lucky, uh, very lucky. Now if he wants to take it back and then do it, hey, that's your choice. Yeah. <laughs> We spoke to a professor, Stella Rouse, at uh, the University of Maryland, who said that the second generation children of immigrant parents find it a lot easier to identify with the culture of their parents today. It's because of technology, which is allowing more and more younger kids to feel like citizens of the world. Yeah, so a lot of kids are just like, they're like, oh, you play, you play cricket. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. happens to everyone in America. Like, this, this summer, I went to England, yeah. and there it's like pretty much the same as India. Everyone's talking about cricket. Yeah. The second thing that's going on, I think, is that there's an understanding that these kids, they're growing up in an era where it's not so frowned upon to embrace things that are quote-unquote other. When I was talking to a lot of these kids that are, you know, between the ages of 11 to 16, they, they have this, like, nonchalance, I guess, towards 
doing something and being invested in something that is not necessarily popular. That's sort of an interesting shift in the way younger kids are able to understand themselves. When we go to practice, we're just like, we, me and my friends, we talk about it. We're just like, oh, these people make fun of us, so they don't really know how, how much we love the game. Yeah. You proud to, to play cricket? Yeah, a lot, yeah. Rebecca Tan is a local reporter at The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We are interviewing Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg for an upcoming show. What do you want to hear from him? Tweet with the hashtag PostReports to suggest a question, and we might ask it during the interview. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 